Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I know it's been a while. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. It's strange to think that we are living through a significant moment in history, maybe one that we'll be talking about for the rest of our lives. But in these extraordinary times, I hope that listening to this podcast can bring at least a small measure of normalcy and distraction to you. Having said that, let's get into it. I've chosen to cover the American neurosurgeon Walter Dandy, who some of you may recall from my earlier Twitter poll on the next topics to cover, lost to the famous duo of DeBakey and Cooley. But he is second to none in the history of the beginnings of neurosurgery. Well, except maybe Harvey Cushing. Anyways, let's drill down into the dark recesses of this story in this dandy of an episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's talk about your brain. Well, more specifically, the spaces around it and within it, really, and what fills these spaces. As I'm sure most listeners know, this is the cerebrospinal fluid, or more commonly CSF. You may be familiar with the colloquial term, not the band, spinal tap, also known as a lumbar puncture. This is a procedure done to sample the CSF through a needle placed in the lower spine. But do you know where CSF comes from and where it goes? The history of CSF takes us through both ancient and modern medical history. Hippocrates described water surrounding the brain in cases of congenital hydrocephalus, which comes from the ancient Greek words for water and head, and Galen, whose works on anatomy and medicine would dominate Western thought for centuries, referred to excremental liquid in the ventricles of the brain, believing it to be secreted out through the nose. A couple things there. I'm guessing by using the word excremental, he was not referring to the common use of the word excrement, but rather the Latin word externer, meaning to excrete. Which is an interesting observation, as it would not be obvious that the fluid replenishes itself, as it must if it is being excreted, a discovery that would wait another 1,500 years or so. Also, it should be noted that if CSF is leaking out of your nose, you have what's called a cerebrospinal fluid leak. Now, this can have a number of causes and symptoms, which we won't get into, but Basically, it means that there's a tear in the connective tissue surrounding the brain and spinal cord called the dura. So how do the anatomists that came after Hippocrates and Galen miss what should have been an obvious finding of fluid in the brain? Well, and what was a surprising and frankly disturbing fact to me as I read about it, apparently this was due to the prevailing autopsy technique of cutting off the head from the neck, <gasps> which would then have allowed the CSF and blood to drain from the brain and spine. Yikes. So then who did discover, or maybe more accurately rediscover, CSF? That is credited to Emanuel Swedenborg, a Swedish Renaissance man from the 18th century. While not a surgeon, or even a medical doctor for that matter, his life and even his death are interesting enough that we should take a minute to cover them. Born in Stockholm in 1688, he began studying at the University of Uppsala, where his father worked as a professor of theology. However, he initially studied the family business, graduating with a degree in mining and engineering. Swedenborg then traveled throughout Europe, studying a broad number of scientific topics, including astronomy and mathematics, and came up with a number of inventions, such as a new design for a dry dock, an ear trumpet, a method of calculating longitude using the stars, and even drew up plans for a machine gun, a submarine, and an aeroplane. Initially, Swedenborg returned home to assume the office of Assessor Extraordinary of the Board of Mines, which he held until religious matters became his sole concern. 
In fact, it has been written that he began to be interested in the search for the seat of the soul, a journey that led him to the anatomists of France, Germany, and Italy. From 1736 to 1740, he participated in a number of dissections, which led to him writing his observations on the brain, spinal cord, and blood circulation in a manuscript. Unfortunately, as he was not a physician, he was unable to find a publisher, and so it sat unread and undiscovered until it was unearthed in Stockholm a century and a half later and published in 1887. Within this manuscript, Swedenborg describes the CSF as spiritus lymph and highly gifted juice, which is dispensed from the roof of the fourth ventricle to the medulla oblongata and the spinal cord. He also comments on the subarachnoid space and the arachnoid membrane, and recognized the cerebral cortex as the seat of thought and the source of the sensory and motor functions of the neurons. Pretty advanced stuff for the time, and especially for a mining engineer. However, his interest continued to bend toward the spiritual, to the point where he believed he could freely visit heaven and hell and converse with angels, demons, and other spirits. His theological writings, most famously the Heavenly Doctrine, are revered by a religious movement known as the New Church, also known as Swedenborgianism. This began just 15 years after his death. And actually, there is one last weird bit of history, this one surrounding Swedenborg's death and remains. Swedenborg died on March 29, 1772, in London, England, and was initially buried in that city in the Swedish Lutheran churchyard, which was in an East London slum. However, in 1908, the Swedish government brought his remains back to Sweden to be interred in a large tomb in the cathedral at Uppsala, or so they thought. It seems that in 1817, as the church books show, the skull was removed from the old coffin and replaced two years later. At some point thereafter, a collector of curios in Wellclose Square, near the old Swedish church in London, showed his friends a skull which he claimed was that of Emanuel Swedenborg. This collector passed it on to a friend, who would later discover the letters E. Sborg scratched into the bone. Other sources say it was sold to a phrenological society, which studied the contours of the skull to determine a person's psychological attributes. Regardless, the Swedish authorities had Swedenborg's remains analyzed in 1961 and came to the conclusion that the skull found in the tomb at Uppsala was not that of Swedenborg. In 1878, Swedenborg's skull turned up at Sotheby's for auction, but they did not divulge the identity of the seller. Regardless, the Royal Academy of Science in Stockholm paid £1,500 for the relic, which they then reunited with the rest of his skeleton at the Uppsala Cathedral. I told you the story was interesting. Okay, back to CSF. A number of anatomists contributed to our understanding of its formation and function, which we won't get into here except to mention the final contributions made by two physicians in the early years of the 20th century. The first was a physician named William Mesterzat, who gave the first accurate description of the chemical composition of the CSF, and the second was Harvey Cushing, one of the most famous neurosurgeons in history and subject of not one, but two episodes of this podcast, numbers 42 and 43. In 1914, he published conclusive evidence that the CSF is secreted by the choroid plexus. So let's quickly review some anatomy and physiology. The ventricular system is the name for the set of four interconnected cavities in the brain, which is continuous with the central canal of the spinal cord through which CSF circulates. It's some great anatomy with historically relevant names and interesting etymology. 
The name ventricle itself comes from the diminutive form of the Latin venter, which translates to little belly, stomach, or womb. Now, there are two lateral ventricles, which lie in the left and right hemispheres of the brain, and the third and fourth ventricles. These are all interconnected, and that's where the fun names begin. These connections are called foramina, or foramen for the singular, which is itself a Latin word meaning hole or opening. The first ones are the foramina that connect the lateral ventricles to the third ventricle, called the interventricular foramina, or foramina of Monroe. This is after Scottish physician and anatomist Alexander Monroe, specifically Secondus, as he was the second of three generations of physicians by the same name, who lived from 1733 to 1817. He described an enlarged foramen in the context of hydrocephalus in a presentation he gave in 1764 to the Philosophical Society of Edinburgh, and later in a published paper in 1783. Here's an excerpt, quote, An oval hole, large enough to admit a goose quill, under forepart of the fornix. From this hole, a probe can be readily passed into the other lateral ventricle, showing, in the first place, that the two lateral ventricles communicate with each other, end quote. Now, it should be noted that this is in fact not the case, and the two lateral ventricles do not connect directly to each other. And it should be further noted that he was not the first to describe the connections between the lateral and third ventricles, writing, quote, These cavities have been described by Galen and by many succeeding authors of eminence as all communicating with each other, end quote. But his description was not well received and challenged by a number of anatomists, as Monroe himself wrote about 14 years after his initial publication in A Treaty on the Brain, written in 1797. Here he states, quote, To my very great surprise, however, I have been informed that several teachers of anatomy in London have told their pupils that they had looked for such passages in vain, and therefore ventured to deny their existence, end quote. He continued to claim there was a direct connection between the lateral ventricles and it wasn't until the 20th century when techniques for forming casts of the ventricles became available that this was definitively disproven. One 20th century anatomist made the following argument, which I think is quite interesting. They argued, quote, that there is no justification for the retention of the eponymous term foramen of Monroe as a synonym for the interventricular foramen of modern terminology for two reasons. Firstly, because Monroe added nothing of value to the pre-existing descriptions of the foramen, and secondly, because he actually misinterpreted the nature of the communication between the third and lateral ventricles, end quote. Who knew there was so much controversy over a simple name? But before we completely dismiss the contributions of Monroe, I do want to point out that he is also known for establishing the Monroe-Kelly hypothesis or doctrine. This was done with Scottish surgeon George Kelly. As I realize how deep down this rabbit hole we ventured, I'll give the abbreviated version. This states that the sum of volumes of brain parenchyma, or tissue, CSF, and intracranial blood is constant, as it must be since the adult skull can't expand. So any increase in volume of one of the constituents must be compensated by a decrease in the volume of another. Alright, now let's move along our ventricular system and talk about the connection between the third and fourth ventricle, which has the delightful name of cerebral aqueduct, or the aqueduct of Sylvius. Now let's break it down into two parts, first the aqueduct and then Sylvius. Now I won't go on too much, but I honestly love that it was given the name aqueduct, which, as you may have deduced, means a conduit of water, a fairly accurate description. Of course, many listeners may be familiar with the word as it describes some of the most famous Roman ruins in Europe. 
As is often said, water is the lifeblood of civilization, and the ability to move vast amounts of water into cities helped the empire flourish. These aqueducts are found throughout the reach of the Roman Empire, but most famous is probably the Pont de Garde in modern-day France, a bridge with three tiers of arches. However, this is only a small section of the entire aqueduct, most of which was actually underground. And as the water was moved by gravity only, there had to be a consistent gradient from source to destination. But this had to be fairly minimal to keep water pressure under control. The aqueduct of the Pont de Garde descended only 12.6 meters, or 41 feet, over its entire length of 50 kilometers, or 31 miles. Of course, like many things that the Romans are famous for, they did not invent aqueducts, but rather used their ingenuity to perfect it. Aqueducts likely began in India and the Middle East, and the Greeks and Etruscans, the people in Italy before the Romans, also built them, but not like the Romans. Many of the aqueducts they built were functional for centuries, a marvel of civil engineering. One mistake they made, though, was to use pipes lined by lead. One recent study calculated that Roman tap water contained lead levels of up to 100 times that of local spring water. And it has been hypothesized that lead poisoning played a role in the fall of the empire. And one last thing. Those listeners that remember their chemistry may recall that the chemical symbol for lead is actually PB. The Latin word for lead was plumbum, which gives us the English word plumbing. Crazy, right? Now that is probably more than you ever wanted to know about aqueducts, so let's move on to Silvius. Now already we have to make a clarification. There are at least two major anatomical structures described as Silvian, and some sources suggest at least 10 other neurological or anatomical terms, and these major ones being the aqueduct of Silvius and the Silvian fissure. The latter describes the sulcus or fissure which separates the frontal and parietal lobes from the temporal lobe in each hemisphere. And you may already know this, but sulcus is a Latin word meaning furrow, trench, or ditch, which seems pretty fitting. And there's another point of confusion. There were two anatomists named Silvius. A quick side note, Silvius is a Latinized version of the name de la Beau, the equivalent of the French name Dubois, or Van den Bosch in Dutch, or Woods in English. And I hope there are some Tolkien fans listening because the Wood Elves in Lord of the Rings are also called the Sylvan Elves. The Latin word Silva means woods, and it's also where we get place names like Pennsylvania and Transylvania. Right. So the Sylvian fissure, being an external feature of the brain, has been known since antiquity. But the first clear description of it goes to an Italian surgeon and anatomist named Fabricius ab Aquapendente in 1600. He actually built the very first permanent anatomical theater at the University of Padua, which is still preserved today. And the cerebral aqueduct is thought to have been first described in 1521 by anatomist Berengarius Carpensis, and even called an aqueduct by Arantius in 1587. However, neither seemed to earn the naming rights for these structures. To understand why, we have to first meet Franciscus Silvius, who was born in Germany, but spent his professional life at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. He was a teacher of neuroanatomy and beloved by his students. One of them, Thomas Bartholinus, is thought to be the one to attach the name of Silvius to both structures in honor of his mentor. And the name of the student may sound familiar as it was his father, Caspar Bartholinus, who described the structures that bear the family name, the Bartholin glands. Now the other Silvius, Jacobus, was also an anatomist and physician but lived a century before. 
He was a teacher at the University of Paris and a strict adherent to the anatomical teachings of Galen, which would be his undoing. Interestingly, Galen did not name most of the muscles and blood vessels in the body, but rather simply numbered them. Jacobus Silvius gave them names, a list too lengthy and full, but here's a little taste. Brachialis, perineus, biceps, triceps, jugular, subclavian, femoral, etc. One source suggested the reason why we still number cranial nerves 1 through 12 is because Galen did so, and Silvius never bothered to give them new names. His defense of Galen did lead to one strange claim. Where there were observable facts that contradicted Galen's teachings, Silvius claimed that this was evidence that the human body had changed over the centuries. But Jacobus, unlike Franciscus, by the way, no source described any connection between the two other than the Latinized last name, was not well-loved by his students. His most famous one, Vesalius, see podcast episode 81, pointed out many of Galen's errors in his famous text, De Humani Corporis Fabrica. This led to a huge rift between them, to the point where Silvius tried to damage Vesalius's standing in the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, where Vesalius was a royal physician, with this letter, quote, I implore his imperial majesty to punish severely, as he deserves, this monster born and bred in his own house, this worst example of ignorance, ingratitude, arrogance, and impiety, to suppress him, so that he may not poison the rest of Europe with his pestilential breath. If this hydra rears some new head, destroy it immediately. Tear and tread on this chimera of monstrous size, this crude and confused farrago of filth and sewage, this work wholly unworthy of your perusal, and consign it to Vulcan, quote. Pretty harsh. But his students would get the last laugh. As you can tell by the quote, Jacobus Silvius was not super nice, but rather famous for being cheap, intolerant, and vindictive. A mock epitaph was written in charcoal on the wall of the church where he was buried, which read, quote, In this grave lies old Silvius during his day. He never gave aught without getting full pay. And though dead as a herring, so naught could be worse, he is vexed he can't charge you for reading this verse, end quote. Gotta admit, that's pretty good. But let's move on. Before we finally get to the main subject matter, let's wrap up the anatomy stuff real quick. Specifically, let's follow the CSF from production to removal. First, CSF is made in the choroid plexuses, which are networks of capillaries and specialized ependymal cells found in all four ventricles and the interventricular foramina. Choroid means chorion-like, and for those that remember a bit of embryology, chorion is the outer membrane surrounding the fetus. Perhaps these look like membranes, I'm not sure. I couldn't really find an explanation, so if you know, drop me a line. So the CSF flows in bulk from the sites of production to sites of absorption. From the lateral ventricles, it moves through the foramen of Monroe into the third ventricle, then through the aqueduct of Silvius into the fourth ventricle. From there, a small amount of fluid goes into the central canal of the spinal cord, which is why CSF can be sampled by lumbar puncture or a needle in the lower back. But the majority leaves the fourth ventricle for the subarachnoid space through either one of the pair of lateral apertures or foramina of Lushka, or through the median aperture, also called the foramen of Magendi. Once in the subarachnoid space, the fluid gets reabsorbed primarily by the arachnoid villi, which project into the dural sinuses, which is part of the venous system. Areas where the subarachnoid space opens up are called cisterns, 
originally from a Greek word meaning chest or box, but probably borrowed from the Latin cisterna, which meant underground reservoir of water. So the lateral apertures are named after a 19th century German anatomist named Herbert von Luschke. He also has a law named after him. Luschke's law is to help identify the ureter in surgery and states, the ureter crosses the pelvic brim at the bifurcation of the common iliac artery. Now, I've heard that before, but I didn't know that it had a name. The median aperture is named after French physiologist Francois Magendie. Okay, I don't know about you, but I've had enough anatomy. Let's get to the main subject of the matter, Dr. Walter Dandy. He was born on April 6, 1886 in Sedalia, Missouri. The only child to his father, John, a railroad engineer originally from Barrow-in-Furness, Lancashire, England, and Rachel Kilpatrick from Armagh, Ireland. Walter was the class valedictorian for his high school and stayed on in his home state for undergraduate studies, graduating from the University of Missouri in 1907 despite being offered a Rhodes Scholarship. That fall, Walter began medical school at Johns Hopkins, but actually began as a second year as he was given enough credits from his undergrad to be allowed to skip the first year. By the spring of 1910, Dandy had completed medical school and went on to the Hunterian Laboratory for Experimental Medicine for a year. It was customary to spend that first year in the Surgical Hunterian, also known as the Doghouse. In what was certainly an important influence on his future career, the supervising physician there was none other than Harvey Cushing. See podcast episodes 42 and 43. While there, Dandy studied the blood vessels and nerves supplying the canine and feline pituitary gland. From there, Dandy became Cushing's assistant resident for a year. It was around this time that a fairly infamous quarrel began between the two men, which would last throughout their careers. While the exact nature is unknown, one story suggests that it began one day in the operating room where Dandy was assisting Cushing. Apparently, Dandy attempted to do something with his left hand, to which Cushing said, quote, Use your right hand, Dandy. You're clumsy enough with that, end quote. Pretty harmless barb, in my opinion, but who knows what the truth is. Regardless, because of their disagreements, Dandy thought he had lost his position and even began making inquiries with the surgeon in Albany to start practicing surgery there. Fortunately, the head of the surgical training program, none other than Dr. William Halstead, see episode 35, intervened, and Dandy's reappointment was confirmed. It was not long after this that Dr. Cushing left Johns Hopkins to accept a position at Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston. Dandy continued on with his training under Halstead, completing his general surgery residency in 1918. Now, I did mention that Cushing likely piqued the young Dandy's interest in the field of neurosurgery, but it was actually George J. Hewer who completed his training in this new field of study after Cushing left. Hewer was three years senior in the program to Dandy, but was called away to serve in World War I in 1914, leaving Dandy to rise to the position of senior resident. Hewer, in fact, expected to return to Johns Hopkins after the war and be appointed chief of neurosurgery, but when he returned, he found Dandy had already been offered the position. After his training was complete, Dandy joined the surgical staff at Johns Hopkins in 1918, as just mentioned, where he would spend his entire career. In fact, Hewer left Hopkins in 1922, leaving Dandy as the sole neurosurgeon at that venerated institution until his death, which was actually in the hospital itself, spoiler alert, in 1946. Imagine that, one neurosurgeon for the entire Johns Hopkins Hospital. But let's rewind to cover the work he did there over that career. Dandy had an almost unbelievably prolific career, 
influencing this new specialty in almost every aspect. It is said that he would perform as many as 1,000 surgeries a year. How was he able to handle such a workload and still find time to write papers and textbooks and conduct experiments? The secret may lie in his infamous brain team. Now remember, we're talking about the first half of the 20th century where residency and fellowship training were nowhere near as organized as they are now. By 1940, this brain team consisted of a resident, assistant resident, surgical intern, full-time scrub nurse, full-time nurse anesthetist, another part-time nurse anesthetist, assistant scrub nurse, circulating nurse, full-time orderly, and Dandy's secretary. Now, the general surgery residency at the time was eight years, and two years of that would be spent as an assistant resident, and two more as the Bain resident. Basically, it is near the equivalent of doing two residencies. Now, this system graduated 12 neurosurgeons, which seems low until you think about the time required and the fact that the need at the time would be fairly low, as neurosurgery was just coming into its own as a surgical specialty. Just to get a sense of how well this team worked, here's a quote from one of his former residents, Irving Sherman. Quote, the residents, one on each side of Dandy, removed the used instruments from Dandy's hands and replaced them with new instruments as needed. Rarely did Dandy have to ask for an instrument. As residents, we knew which instrument was needed, as we were mentally performing the operation along with Dandy. In this way, Dandy rarely had to remove his gaze from the operative field, and he was able to complete his surgery rapidly and efficiently, although in an unhurried manner, end quote. Now, some of you may be wondering why I went through such lengthy detail about the ventricles and cerebrospinal fluid. Well, it's about to pay off. You see, many of Dandy's contributions involved this system. Not only did he demonstrate the circulation and absorption of CSF for the first time, he also described the causes and treatment of hydrocephalus, and we'll get into that in a minute, developed ventriculography, which is imaging of the ventricles, and pneumoencephalography, imaging of the brain by injecting air into the ventricular system, and essentially developed the use of endoscopy and neurosurgery, as well as pioneering or improving many neurosurgical operations. And in his spare time, Dr. Dandy designed the modern baseball helmet. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In December of 1913, Dandy and his fellow resident, Kenneth Blackfan published a landmark paper describing the circulation and absorption of CSF in obstructive hydrocephalus, which means, as you may recall, water brain. Now, I could do an entire episode on hydrocephalus, but this one is getting long in the tooth already, so let's do a quick version. In the simplest sense, hydrocephalus is an accumulation of CSF within the brain. This can be either congenital, meaning a condition of birth, or acquired later in life. And this can be further separated into communicating, meaning no physical obstruction, but rather a problem with reabsorption of CSF, and non-communicating, meaning there is a blockage in the flow of CSF. Finally, there's a chronic version where the pressure in the brain is not increased, but we won't worry about that one for now. The key issue is the increased pressure in the skull, which leads to symptoms in the acquired type, like headaches, double vision, decreased mental function, etc. So how did Dandy and Black fan demonstrate obstructive hydrocephalus by placing a piece of cotton housed in a small gel capsule into the aqueduct of Silvius of a dog. The poor canine developed lethargy and vomiting, recreating the clinical signs of the condition. A dandy would later describe the two pathophysiological mechanisms for the development of hydrocephalus. 
Either there was too little reabsorption, for example, adhesions in the subarachnoid space in the communicating type, or from the flow being blocked, like in non-communicating type, by something like a tumor. The other cause, though quite rare, was the production of too much CSF by hypertrophy of the choroid plexus. Now, it's hard to imagine now, but at the time, this was groundbreaking work. So much so that Halstead is claimed to have stated to his colleague, Dr. Park, quote, Dandy will never do anything equal to this again. Few men make more than one great contribution to medicine, end quote. But Halstead was wrong. So it's all well and good to classify the different types of hydrocephalus, but in a world before the CT scan or MRI, how do you see inside someone's skull to identify where and what the lesion is? Simple x-rays of the time couldn't show the soft tissues of the brain through the bones of the skull. Prior to Dandy's innovation, the identification of brain tumors, or any space-occupying lesion to use neurosurgical lingo, was based entirely on patient history and neurological examination. Dandy developed two techniques which would be used up until the 1970s called ventriculography and pneumoencephalography. The first involved injecting air directly into the ventricular system. The other involved injecting air through a lumbar puncture after all of the CSF was drained out. The air-filled spaces would then be seen on x-ray. Alterations in the size, shape, or position of the ventricles would indirectly predict the presence and location of brain lesions. The ventriculography involved drilling a hole in the skull called a burr hole, and a syringe would be inserted into the ventricle. CSF would then be drained out and replaced by an equal amount of air. Now, while doing these, Dandy noticed that in some cases, air injected into the ventricular system would move into the subarachnoid space, which would outline the subarachnoid cisterns and cerebral sulci, providing even more information. This made Dandy realize the diagnostic potential of air in the subarachnoid space, and so he injected air through a lumbar puncture in the lower back to get into the space. Being an airhead has its uses, apparently. Now, he published his paper on ventriculography in 1918 and on pneumoencephalography in 1919. As a point of clarification, despite the improvement by injecting into the lower back rather than drilling a hole in the head, ventriculography remained as it was much safer than the lumbar puncture in patients with severe intracranial hypertension or increased intracranial pressure, which carried the risk of herniation, meaning the parts of the brain, like the brainstem, which sort of runs your vital functions, get squeezed against hard structures in the brain, which is bad. Now, if you think these two procedures sound uncomfortable, just wait. Because the ventricular system has so many twists and turns, to ensure that the air reached all the corners so visualization was optimized, the patient had to be strapped into an open-backed chair, so the lower back could be accessed for the lumbar puncture, and turned all around, even upside down and somersaulted. And as you can imagine, this procedure was not well tolerated by conscious patients, as it sounds worse than some roller coasters, and would cause headaches and vomiting. Now, I've never seen this, but apparently the procedure was depicted in the 1973 horror film The Exorcist, in which they were looking for an intracranial lesion to explain Regan's demonic behavior. But it had great value for the surgeon. Prior to this, it was possible to localize only approximately one-third of all brain tumors. After the method was perfected, virtually every tumor could be localized, which may explain why it persisted up until the advent of the CT scan in the 1970s. Given the strangeness of this technique, where did Dandy get the inspiration to even consider it? The story goes that, 
On January 3, 1917, while working on the general surgery service, a patient was being prepared for abdominal exploration for intestinal perforation. A routine chest x-ray was ordered, but Dandy noticed that there was air under the diaphragm, a sign most medical students would recognize today, but in the early days of x-ray was not well understood. The air created sharp outlines, which made him realize that air introduced in the ventricular system could do the same thing. But why not try a liquid instead? There were already a number of these that lit up on x-ray called contrast agents that were being used in other areas of the body. These include thorium, potassium iodide, and others. Tandy did, in fact, experiment with these in dogs, but they were uniformly fatal when injected into the ventricular system. As we know by now through this podcast that the practice of medicine, and maybe surgery especially, is a conservative profession where change is not quickly adopted. Dandy's critics denounced these procedures as dangerous and unnecessary, but he was sure that he was right and persisted despite this resistance. Now, in the defense of the critics, the side effects were not limited to just vomiting and headaches, but in some cases led to convulsions, infections, bradycardia, meaning a slow heartbeat, or even death. Yet with improved techniques and proper indications, cerebral pneumoencephalography, as the two procedures in general were called, became widely accepted, and Dandy was even nominated for a Nobel Prize for this work in 1933, but he didn't win. Now, of course, Dandy's contributions were not limited to the ventricular system, but that just seemed like a good place to focus on. Since you probably don't want to listen to me rattle on for another hour about his other accomplishments, let's just quickly hit some highlights. Using his newfound ability to visualize intracranial tumors, Dandy published two papers, one in 1933, the other in 1934, which are considered classics of neurosurgery. These cover tumors of the third and lateral ventricles, respectively, and were based on his own personal operative experience. I know that they've been republished in more recent journals if anyone wants to look them up. The pictures of ventriculography alone are worth it. Dandy revolutionized the surgery for acoustic neuroma, performing his first operation for one in 1917 while still a resident. He did the same for operations of the dreaded tic de la rue, sometimes called the suicide disease, as it was so painful and unrelenting. In his hands, Dandy was able to permanently cure 90% of patients with a less than 1% mortality rate. He also had an interest in the vascular system of the brain, and on March 23, 1937, Dandy performed the first clipping of a cerebral aneurysm, which is now a common and life-saving operation. Another area of impact was on something called neuroendoscopy, which is to use a scope of some type to look directly into the brain's ventricles. He actually used equipment borrowed from urology, after they were cleaned, I'm sure. Here's a quote from a report Dandy wrote in 1922 of his experiences. Quote, The inspection of the ventricles was all that could have been desired. It was possible to see practically the entire extent of the lateral ventricle, the foramen of Monroe, the septum lucidum, with numerous perforations in it, and the entire extent of the choroid plexus. In one instance, we could distinguish the opening of a defect in the wall of the ventricle, the mouth of an encephalocele, end quote. Now, he would go on to use it to remove the choroid plexus in cases of communicating hydrocephalus, but by the 1940s, despite a couple decades of tinkering with improving the scopes, this practice fell out of favor. But it has since made a resurgence, further proof of Dandy's innovative way of thinking. Going back to the beginning, in regards to his work on CSF and hydrocephalus, Dandy pioneered two important operations. 
So remember the communicating and non-communicating types? To treat the first, he developed the choroid plexectomy, which is surgical removal of the choroid plexus to decrease the production of CSF, and the third ventriculostomy, which was essentially cutting a hole in the bottom of the third ventricle to allow CSF to bypass the rest of the ventricular system and drain directly into the subarachnoid space where it would be reabsorbed. As I've said, it feels like I've only told part of the story, but there's simply too much to cover in a podcast. So let's just tell one more. Now the baseball season should have begun by now, a ritual of spring for decades, at least in North America, but the pandemic has put that on hold. That doesn't mean, however, that we can't go out to the ball game in spirit. Now let's go all the way back to June 1st of 1940. The Brooklyn Dodgers, who had become the LA Dodgers in 1958, were leading their division and were playing the Chicago Cubs. Quick side note, do you know why they're called the Brooklyn Dodgers? The full name was actually the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers, a moniker bestowed upon them by the ink-stained wretches working for the local newspapers. This came from the fact that in 1892, Brooklyn became just the second city in the U.S. to adopt electric-powered streetcars or trolleys. The citizenry, accustomed to slow-moving horse and buggies, tended not to look both ways before crossing the streets. Because of this, a number of pedestrians were actually killed by trolleys, as many as 51 in 1893. So now you know. May it come in handy for you in a game of trivia or cocktail party. Back to the ball game. Playing shortstop for the Dodgers that day was a 21-year-old rookie with the wonderful name of Pee Wee Reese. While at bat, the young player was struck on the side of the head by an errant fastball from pitcher Jake Moody. Reese wore only a canvas fielding cap, like all batters of his time, and he fell limp to the ground. Fortunately for Pee Wee, there was no lasting damage to his brain, but he was one of the lucky ones. The euphemistically named beanball, when a pitcher, intentionally or otherwise, throws the ball at the batter's head, was the major cause of fatalities in baseball. While many amateurs and minor leaguers lost their lives to this, the most famous incident involved Cleveland Indian shortstop Ray Chapman. On August 16, 1920, while playing the Yankees, Ray was struck by a ball to the head. He died 12 hours later, earning the dubious honor of being the only player in Major League history to die from an injury sustained during a game. So what does this have to do with Dr. Dandy? Well, following Pee Wee's beanball, Brooklyn Dodgers manager Larry McPhail partnered with an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist named Dr. George Bennett to develop protective headgear. And it so happened that Dr. Bennett worked at Johns Hopkins, and so he called on his colleague, Dr. Dandy, to assist him to design one using a thorough understanding of brain and skull anatomy. Dandy, who had been captain of the Johns Hopkins baseball team as a student, was happy to join forces. He actually credited playing baseball with helping to refine his surgical technique, saying, quote, It has made me quite adept with my hands, and I can really operate very skillfully when given a chance, end quote. Living in Baltimore, he was, of course, an Orioles fan, and would often invite his brain team to take in a game at Oriole Park. The best part of this anecdote was that the recreational nature of the outing did not stop the hierarchy of the team. The chief resident sat next to Dandy, followed in order by the assistant resident and the two interns. Once, when Dandy realized that they had not had lunch, he ordered a beer and two hamburgers each for the residents and a Coke and one hot dog each for the interns. Thanks, I guess? Using a jockey's helmet as inspiration, 
Dandy came up with a prototype where two featherweight plastic plates were inserted into the sides of a player's fabric hat. The actual cutting and sewing was done by Dandy's wife and two of his daughters. A later version of the cap can be seen in Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. Following some modifications, the end result was to McPhail's, remember the Brooklyn Dodgers manager, liking. He called it, quote, the biggest thing that has happened to baseball since night baseball, end quote. Soon all the teams in the majors were using them. Dandy, following a legal battle with McPhail, donated the patent for the helmet to baseball in November of 1943. What a great story. And by the way, despite its obvious advantages, the use of helmets was not compulsory in the majors until 1973. Sometimes change comes slowly. Now, we really haven't touched on his life outside of surgery, but Dandy was known to devote most of his time outside the hospital to his family, rarely traveling or attending meetings. He had a number of hobbies and was an expert on the history of the American Civil War. Dandy was supposedly healthy throughout his life until 1946, when he was hospitalized with a heart attack just five days prior to his 60th birthday. After being discharged, he suffered another heart attack, and despite being rushed to Johns Hopkins, he died soon thereafter, just 13 days past his birthday, and was buried at Druid Ridge Cemetery in Pikesville, Maryland. Let's end with an excerpt from his obituary, which ran in the Baltimore Sun, quote, Gruff of manner, hot of temper, and endowed with a tongue as sharp as his instruments, he exacted awe, respect, and the hardest kind of work from his students. And when they got to know him well, they found beneath the hard exterior, as is not uncommon in men of such temperament, a deep vein of tenderness. Quote. His memory is honored by the Walter E. Dandy Neurosurgical Society, founded in St. Louis, Missouri in 2012. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Now you may have noticed that I'm not doing a suture tales this time because this episode is long enough, but be assured I will make sure that I add one in the next episode. But this wraps up today's episode of Legends of Surgery, and I hope you enjoyed it. I really don't know what I'll be covering next time, but I promise it won't be so long between episodes. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes, and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.